0: Totally agree. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, I mean, your brand is the most important thing. I mean, especially if you're going to be selling, you know, brick and mortar, that's what consumers see first. And if they gloss by it and don't spend any time or don't notice it or don't understand what's going on from looking at the packaging, you've lost. So that's definitely where you need to spend some
1: time and money up front. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Today, I'm really happy to have Bert Cohen as a guest, and he is the founder of Clover Vitality Fund. So welcome to the podcast, Bert.
0: Hi, Christy. Thanks for having me. Very honored to be here. Definitely a fan of your podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Do you want to give everyone just a little bit of background on Clover Vitality and then a little bit of background on you and how you sort of wound up here?
0: Sure. Absolutely. I've been in the natural foods industry for a little over 20 years Co-founded a company called Enjoy Life Foods, which was one of the earlier allergy-friendly food companies. It was inspired by my mom. Ran it with a business partner for about six or seven years. He bought me out, which allowed me to go off and start my own company called True Sweets, which was an organic candy company. Built that from the ground up and sold it about seven years ago to Wholesome Sweeteners. I was part of their management team for four years, and the last four years have been playing full-time investor and advisor to emerging food and beverage brands in our industry, which actually leads me to the funds. A couple of years ago, launched Clover Vitality Fund with a couple of partners, Alex and David. And we focus on investing in better-for-you food and beverage companies, typically sales of half a million to 10 million at the time we get first involved.
1: I want to go back for a second. You said the first brand you created, which was obviously, it's a very famous brand, was inspired by your mom.
0: That's right. I was actually getting my MBA at night. I mean, actually my business partner was doing the same thing. And we happened to be taking an entrepreneurship class and we had to come up with an idea for a business. And my mom, who had some different medical
1: conditions and food sensitivities, gave us the idea for Enjoy Life Foods and we
0: turned it into a business plan and ultimately turned it into a real business.
1: That's incredible, actually. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say they came up with it in a class. That's so cool.
0: Yeah, it was fun. It was either doing that or doing a telecom idea. So we chose well.
1: That's incredible. That's great. You've had a bunch of brands, which is already so hard, but then you went to the investment side. So can you talk a little bit about that transition? Because that's pretty unusual being an entrepreneur and a founder multiple times and then switching. So I'm curious about that.
0: It's definitely been a change after playing entrepreneur for 18 years. It was a lot of fun. With the fund obviously came a lot of stress. Yeah. So I felt like it was time to change a little bit what I was doing. And also I felt like there was a lot I could offer to you know the younger and newer entrepreneurs out there. So I think you know, playing full-time investment advisor has suited me well. It's been incredibly enjoyable. And you know, along the way, definitely saw that there was a need for more funds to come out there, especially for some of the earlier stage companies in our industry. Overall, i just absolutely loved it. As I tell people, it's going from playing parent to playing grandparent.
1: Oh, ah, interesting analogy. I mean, I have so many questions for you because you have learned all the entrepreneur lessons along the way. So you have a really unique perspective when you're looking for brands to advise, to invest in. So can you talk a little bit about what you look for and how your experience sort of shaped that? And
0: let me caveat this by saying I'm still learning. The industry even though as we talked about a little bit earlier, there are still some basic, you know, fundamentals that will always be there. It is, you know, certainly changing, you know, every month. All that said, I think when we're thinking about, you know, what are companies that we want to invest in from a fund perspective, you know, there are some common themes. I mean, first
1: of all, great entrepreneurs, great teams. But I'd say just as importantly,
0: entrepreneurs that are coachable, that are approachable as well too, and that you know are looking for somebody or some people that are there to help them out as opposed to just writing a check. From a product standpoint or category standpoint, we're not very interested in me-too products, obviously. We're interested in products that are unique, that consumers really like and can relate to, and that are also on trend and that you know have a good future.
1: How do you determine whether something is going to make it or not? First of all, I think being unique gets harder and harder every day because there are so many products being launched but then when you see something unique, what gets you really excited? Is there something specific? Is it a specific kind of audience?
0: Yeah, so I think there are sort of four parts of the industry that we're most interested in and certainly not unique to us, but given my background, you know, obviously allergy friendly products will always have a soft spot in my heart. So trying to find unique products out there that are filling an unmet need, that's something definitely of interest. Reduced sugar as well as reduced sodium products. Definitely an area of interest for the fund. Reduced sugar products there, a lot of them have come out. I feel like reduced sodium, there's still some white space there. Yeah. So that's definitely of interest. If you look at the investments in our fund, a number of them also fit into better for you authentic ethnic foods. We still feel there's a great opportunity there. Obviously, as the country continues to embrace more multiculturalism as well as, you know, trying new products, we feel like there's a lot of room for growth there. And then last but not least, functional foods. Typically, a product is going to fit into one or these two of those categories to get our interest.
1: Yep. And then how important is the founder to you? I mean, you talked about coachable, which I think is interesting because I wonder if you find a lot of people who you don't feel are coachable And then does that make a decision to move on to something else? And then also just what does a founder have to be about and believe to work with you guys?
0: Most of the people in the industry, I think, are coachable. And I'd say the ones that are not, you know, becomes fairly evident pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So we're able to say, not a fit for us, but best of luck. In terms of the ethos that we're looking for, I mean, we're looking for driven entrepreneurs, But entrepreneurs are interested in surrounding themselves both with a good team from a day-to-day perspective, but also, you know, a good team of investors and advisors, people that want to have advisors around the table and want to reach out to them as opposed to us having to nudge them to set up a monthly call or something like that.
1: How involved are you guys at the beginning, like in the first year?
0: Yeah, it sort of depends on the stage of the companies. I would say, you know, the earlier stage companies, the companies that are a couple million in sales or less, we're typically the first institutional money. So we tend to be a little bit more involved. And that typically will mean that we're going to be part of the board or advisory board. But just as importantly, we're going to be there on monthly, weekly basis, whatever they need to bounce things off of each other and try to give them additional resources. We're not the type of investors that are going to call a daily basis and say, hey, what's going on? So we're a little bit more open and I would say a little bit more, hey, let's talk as needed, as opposed to we need to have a weekly call.
1: Mm -hmm. That's interesting. What have you learned that has either become something you share every time you meet a new founder or invest in a company? Or what have you learned that gives you pause when you think about what to invest in?
0: I would say, first of all, gross margins. Everybody talks about the importance of gross margins, but it seems like, you know, with every company we talk to, there's a slightly different definition of what gross margins are. Trying to level set, here's how we view gross margins, regardless of what others are telling you or regardless of how you look at it from an accounting perspective, here's what we feel is needed in order to have a sustainable business longer term. I think the other thing is, I know some of the other people that have been on your podcast have said this capital efficiency. We are looking for entrepreneurs that believe in capital efficiency and understand how important it is. Especially now, I mean if you look at what's going on in our industry, it is a really challenging time for companies to be raising capital. And I would say the ones that are successful are the ones that are proving that they can be capital efficient.
1: Can you define capital efficiency for some of the listeners who might be really like not understanding and also wanting to start a business and want to know what to do and what that means
0: absolutely it means you are taking investment but it means that you're being very thoughtful about how you deploy that investment it's very easy to basically just say yes to every retailer and distributor that wants to carry your product but that is typically not going to be a very capital efficient model typically the capital efficiency relates primarily to limiting where you're going to have your products on shelves proving that you can get good turns or good velocities and then expanding from there.
1: I love this conversation. And this topic is feels so important, I think, for people to understand, because I think the excitement around getting distribution and having retailers interested is such a huge temptation for brands. But I know because I've been on both sides of it, where I've had clients that I've worked with that have been over distributed, and just can't support the retailers. And I think obviously once you lose distribution at a place you had it, it's so much harder to get it back. So could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, that's true. It's also very expensive if you're ultimately not successful there. So let me give you an example. My last company that I ran, Candy Company, if you look at candy sales, candy sales have always been very attractive in the drug channel. However, when you look at better for you natural organic products, they historically have not sold very well in drug. Mm -hmm. So we had an opportunity to sell our products into one of the large drug chains, but they were demanding that you know, it go into every single one of their stores. Wow. And we said, listen, no, 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 we wanna do a test in just stores with the right demographics, because you know we're not 100% sure this will work well. And they said, no, either you do all of them or not. One of our competitors said, yeah, we'll do it all. And while they had some great initial sales, ultimately the program was a disaster. They lost all the distribution. And from what i heard from them, it was a very expensive proposition.
1: Talk about why it's expensive and also what you have to do to make it successful, because I think that's what people don't think about. Like, it's so great to get into a store, but then what, what kind of support do you have to give? And is that what you mean when you talk about expensive?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I mean, you've got the upfront costs. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to do a free fill, which can be expensive, especially expensive when you're going into a channel where instead of turning, let's say, three to four units per store per week, you're turning, if you're lucky, 0.2 or something units per store per week. That makes the math really tough to work off the bat. And then secondly, if the product's not turning well, you're probably going to be threatened with, hey, you need to do some really expensive promotions to keep the product on the store shelves. And chances are those are not going to work really well. And -hmm. then ultimately, when you get kicked off the store shelves, you're ultimately going to be charged back for the product that didn't sell through.
1: Interesting. So you made the right decision when you decided not to do that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things you did that taught you lessons that you'd like to share with others?
0: Some of the best decisions we did make certainly were to turn down some opportunities at retailers like that. Sometimes we were also too conservative and you do have to you know, make some bets here and there, but mm-hmm. just make sure there are bets you can afford to lose. With my last company, The Candy Company, we were hesitant to raise much in the way of outside capital, which to some extent served us well, but we also could have probably grown more quickly if we had raised outside capital.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: not having that outside capital also made us defer making some investments that we should have made earlier on. Like for instance, you know, we were having challenges on the packaging of our products and knew that we had to build out our own packaging facility. And instead of having
1: sort of a top-notch packaging facility We ended up doing something lower cost, which was preserve capital in the short term, but ultimately ended up being
0: not such a great decision. Mm -hmm. If we had, you know, invested properly, we could have moved into a top-notch packaging facility, improved our gross margins, and also stayed in that facility longer. So I think, again, it's a fine line between capital efficiency and being sort of short-sighted. And I definitely have been on the wrong side of that a couple of times.
1: It's so interesting that you talk about that because I'm working with a brand now and they just don't want to take capital. And I get it. But also, like, I feel like in a lot of ways, at some point, every brand has to be able to scale more quickly than you can scale without outside capital. And I think it puts some pressure on you to actually make smarter decisions that are based on data and stuff like that, that you might not make if you have no pressure from outside investors.
0: Yep. And listen, not all capital is equal just because you're hesitant to take capital from an institution doesn't mean that you can't take it from friendly angels or other, you know, value-added investors. That said though, I mean, yes, I mean, there are two different paths with businesses. When you take institutional capital, it does mean that you're raising the bar for growth as well as for what it's going to take to get a successful exit.
1: Yes. You mentioned a couple of other things that I want to just go back to. You talked about gross margins, I think that's something that, I mean, if you're really, really at the very beginning stages, I don't know if everyone knows what that means or what the margins have to be for you to be successful or to be interesting to an investor or to a strategic partner. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Back when I was running a company, I was told that you need a gross margin before trade spend of at least 40% to ultimately have a sustainable business. But what I think a lot of entrepreneurs are not including in their costs when they're calculating that gross margin are both freight out as well as warehouse fulfillment expenses. Again, I understand from an accounting perspective why those might be below the line, but those are real expenses that you have. Yeah. So regardless of how they look on the income statement, when you're thinking about it yourself, you need to make sure that you've got gross margins of at least 40%. And nowadays, I would say probably closer to forty-five percent to be successful, because you know you're going to have trade spends, regardless of what you think about it. I'm sort of thinking about below that line. Early years, you know, you're going to be probably twenty to twenty-five percent, and later years, hopefully, you can get that down to fifteen percent. But you also have to pay brokers, you have to pay salespeople, mm-hmm. as well as little stuff here and there. So again, if you ultimately want a sustainable, profitable business, gross margins are important.
1: Do you feel that you have to start at that percentage? I mean, when you do short runs at the beginning to prove potential, to prove value, do you need to start there?
0: Absolutely not. And actually one thing that's really important to me is that people are not being too short-sighted on that. Because typically the thing that's going to allow you to get sustainable gross margins is going to be scale. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if entrepreneurs are too focused on short-term gross margins, it can actually hurt the medium term, which is not good. I mean, you need
1: to figure out a way to grow your business and get to scale. That said though, there's
0: gotta be a clear path to it. It can't be, oh, well we think there's another contract manufacturer out there who can get us there. It's gotta be, okay, our current command has said that if we go from producing 10,000 units a month to 100,000 units per run, that they'll lower our price by X and that will allow us to get to an acceptable gross margin.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So all of those things that happen they are data points. How important is data to you when you're looking at an investment?
0: Data is definitely important. That said, data can also be misleading. We take it all with a grain of salt. If you look at us, we have sort of an investment scorecard that you know we look at. But really before we get to that, the most important things like we talked about, the entrepreneur and the team. We feel like this is Somebody that's going to be able to move the business forward. Somebody that we are going to enjoy spending time with. Again, the products. Do we like the products? Do we see the vision there? Do we see them expand, you know, a clear path to them expanding beyond just the one specific product they're in? Lastly, again, is there sort of similar thinking in terms of capital efficiency, as Mm -hmm. well as how they want to move forward.
1: So when you say data can be misleading, what does that mean?
0: A lot of folks will look at SPIN's data. And Spins Data is, again, a great data point, but it can be misleading based upon promotions that are being done. Mm -hmm. Or does a brand have multiple positions in an outlet? So for instance, I mean, maybe the data looks really good because the brand was aware they were going to go out to investors and they decided to try to get shippers into all these stores. When you look at the velocity per point of distribution, it looks incredible. Mm -hmm. But part of that is because they've got shippers in there and it can be misleading.
1: Interesting. So you have to really understand that, what that Yeah. Means.
0: Overall, it tends to confirm whether a brand is doing well or tell you if there's some challenges. Yeah. But again, spins data and other data can definitely be misleading too.
1: So you said something interesting that I think is really compelling and pretty universal. You said you need to enjoy spending time with the founders. And I think that it's interesting because, I mean, even as an agency person, there are so many brands, right? For brands, there are so many agencies and partners and a lot of people can do the job and you probably find a lot of brands that you think could potentially be successful. But the thing that I think really makes people successful is when they're able to collaborate and have a really good relationship. And it sounds like you think something similar because you're talking about enjoying spending time with. So it's not all about data. It's not all about proven success. It's about other things that are sort of intangible. Yeah. Yep.
0: That's definitely a part of it for sure. It goes back to our assessment of the entrepreneur and the team. It doesn't have to mean that we have the exact same personalities or the same interests or that we agree on everything. No. But again, it goes back to is this going to be a founder and or a team that sees our value, that really wants our help? And if not, that's okay, but it's likely not going to be a fit for the fund
1: Yep. When you talk about your scorecard, what's on it? What's on your investment scorecard?
0: We have 10 different areas that we look at. I mean, everything from product, market, and key trends, team, capital efficiency, governance, who are the other investors and advisors? scalability, supply chain, which obviously is becoming extremely important, always Very. important. Also, we're looking at with the fund, as I mentioned, and then other things, pathway to exit, as well as the deal terms.
1: Mm-hmm. How many brands do you guys look at any given period of time?
0: It's been busy for us since we kicked off the fund at the beginning of 2021. Last year, we invested in fall brands. And I wow. would say we looked at probably close to 100 Part of that was because we had some pre-fund investments and we had sort of a head start there. This year, we actually had to make an investment in an additional brand, although I suspect we've got some coming up here soon. I would say in the average week, we're seeing about five different investment opportunities. So it's been very busy.
1: It's a sign of loads and loads of people starting brands, right? And also, I mean, if you're looking at five a week and you haven't made an investment yet, is it because you're just not seeing the innovation or the need or what is it?
0: I think part of what's going on right now is there's a lack of institutional capital available for early stage brands and also some brands that maybe have been out there for a while, but are sort of stuck at, you know, let's say five to 10 million in sales. We're seeing some difficult timing to get involved with some of these brands. So we made a lot of investments last year. We obviously want to reserve capital for, you know, these investments to continue their success. So I think we have raised our bar a bit in last year, but to your point, there are also just a lot of tough situations, and also probably a lot of me too companies that we're seeing as well.
1: I'm sure. When you talk about brands that have been around for a while and they haven't reached whatever level of success they need to, do you ever or they're stalled? Is that ever appealing? Ever?
0: Yeah, especially if there's a pretty clear path forward to what they're going to do to turbocharge things and get things heading back in the right direction. I think the challenge, though, we haven't talked too much about this, though, can sometimes be valuation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, we're mm-hmm. coming off a period where valuations were really high, yes, both for earlier stage companies and medium stage companies. Things have changed pretty dramatically recently. I mean, if you look at the companies that went public or SPACs, most of them are trading at 25% of the valuations that they went public at.
1: Mm-hmm. And these
0: are for companies that are hundred million in sales or, you know, a little bit more, a little bit less. And I'm not sure all the founders sort of understand that dynamic and how it's impacting the ability for emerging brands to go out there and raise capital at valuations that people were doing a year or two ago.
1: Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So it feels like it to me, there was so much overvaluation happening and now it's sort of settling down and some people don't really want to sell at the lower valuations. Is that how you feel?
0: To some extent, I think there's always been some disciplined, thoughtful investment in our industry. I'd like to consider us part of that. Those folks didn't do anything too crazy, but there were a lot of others that maybe didn't have so much experience in the industry that saw the growth in the industry, which we still believe in, but maybe let's say came from the tech world and didn't really understand sort of how this industry is different than others. And because of that, they were willing to pay valuations that did not make a lot of sense. Right. Now the valuations have come down, but there's, I think, a couple of challenges for entrepreneurs. One, I think entrepreneurs still, some of them might be stuck in sort of, you know, yesterday's valuations. Yeah. And then secondly, there are just fewer institutions out there that are looking to invest. You know, a lot of them, like us, have made a lot of investments over the last year or two. While they're still going to be making some additional investments, they're probably more selective because they need a reserve capital for their existing investments.
1: Yeah. Interesting. I was at this food tech event last week and there was a lot of conversation. I thought it was really interesting because I'm a brand person. So I totally believe this and this is what I do anyway, but there was so much conversation. There were so many questions from founders that were in the audience about how much time and energy and effort do I spend on actually branding logo design crystallizing my mission and my communications plan. And I feel like at the beginning of when you're starting a brand, that's a hard place to put your money because you don't have any money. But how important is it to get that right at the beginning and actually make the investment there?
0: As somebody who's done it wrong a couple of times, it's super important. And I think what founders, especially first-time founders, don't completely understand is, yes, it does cost a little bit more short-term to invest in your brand in terms of an upfront check. Yeah. But the return, it pays back so quickly. And if you don't have optimal branding, you're just really holding back your sales.
1: That's interesting. I mean, there was a lot of talk about that. And I thought it was a really interesting topic because there's a temptation to shortcut some things at the beginning when you don't have the capital. But that feels like not one of the better ones to shortcut around.
0: Totally agree. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, I mean, your brand is the most important thing. I mean, especially if you're going to be selling you know, brick and mortar. That's what consumers see first. And if they gloss by it and don't spend any time or don't notice it or don't understand what's going on from looking at the packaging, you've lost. So that's definitely where you need to spend some time and money up front.
1: Interesting. Is there anything you wish that people knew before they reached out to you or in general, like advice for people who are looking for capital, what should they be doing? Where should they start? How do they know who the right people are to approach?
0: First of all, i love to talk to anybody and everybody. As somebody you know, who's been on the other side, I got a lot of free and friendly advice. So I welcome anybody reaching out. Things to think about after they're in dialogue with somebody like me or somebody else that's been around for a while is what sort of path and ride do you want? By taking on outside capital, especially institutional capital, that's going to potentially help in a lot of ways, but it's also going to change the nature of what the future looks like for you. So just make sure you know what you're signing up for. If you want something that's a little bit slower growth, something where you're going to have, not have to basically talk to others, then don't take outside capital.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But as we talked about before, though, most businesses in our industry at some point are going to need some capital. Yeah. So to just shut yourself off from taking on any outside capital is probably short sighted and probably going to really limit how much you can ultimately grow.
1: Are there brands that you know of that have literally taken no outside capital and exploded and been wild success stories that could encourage people to do it that way?
0: I think historically that has happened more than is happening these days. I think as it's become more competitive,
1: Mm -hmm. I
0: think that's less and less likely. I have seen some companies and our fund, you know, we've invested in one or two recently that have essentially been self-funded to date. And some of them have gotten up to close to 5 million in sales. Mm -hmm. And they've been able to do that sort of one of two ways. You know, one has been sort of their go-to-market plan. Instead of immediately focusing on brick and mortar, maybe they focus on food service. Mm-hmm, Maybe mm-hmm. they have a different route, such as e-commerce. That's you know very capital efficient, mm-hmm. where they've been able to sort of do that themselves. Yep. I think the other thing is they've been able to just do it through their own pockets. Maybe they've already had one success story. Yeah. Maybe you know they've got the family resources. But again, that's really the exception of the rule as opposed to the rule.
1: How do people find you?
0: They can go to our website, CloverVitality.com or they can just email me directly like i said i'm happy to talk to anybody give you honest feedback and you know point you in the right direction
1: awesome would you ever start a brand again
0: that's a great question right, <laughs> You're right really now i'm having too much to fun
1: so far so yeah, i'm really interested
0: right now i'm having too much fun playing grandparents so i <laughs> can't see that doing anytime soon but never say never
1: Yeah, I have learned that also, never seen ever. But I think it's interesting. I think your analogy is so great. I think you're going to make people want to be a grandparent because it's such a good analogy. The pressure of being an entrepreneur day to day is so intense. And it sounds like maybe grandparenting isn't quite as intense.
0: Yes, it's got its other challenges, too. I mean, you know, certainly I miss obviously having some more control. So you do give that up. And Mm -hmm. I will say it's also, it's really hard being on the other side, telling people no. I mean, having been a founder, got a lot of no's, whether it's from retailers or when we were looking to raise capital, and it's tough to get that. I'd say it's even tougher to give it. So actually, going back to your earlier question about what entrepreneurs should know about institutions, most of them have a really hard time saying no. Some people get better at it over time, but it's still a challenge, especially for me.
1: Really? That's so cool to hear, actually. Like, I feel like if I was an entrepreneur, I'd like to be talking to someone like you who already had the experience, who isn't just someone who has created a fund, but really has been in the trenches and understands the challenges really deeply. That's cool. Yeah,
0: I agree with that. Self-serving, but I agree
1: with that. (laughs) Well, has it pushed you to make any decisions that you feel like you wish you hadn't because you didn't want to say no and you should have?
0: No, ultimately, you know, listen, I mean, it's not only our own capital in the fund, it's outside investors. So we've got to do what we feel is prudent. We will always tell people no, when we don't think it's a good investment. That said though, again, it is tough to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Well, this has been so great. But before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to add? Anything that you're like, I have to just say this thing because people need to know it.
0: Having been on the journey that a lot of the founders have been on It can be a lonely place. It can be a very challenging place. And I would say right now, we're in a time in our industry where it's at sort of the peak of challenges between it being a difficult fundraising environment, what's going on with supply chain, what's going on with inflation. I mean, we're still dealing with some of the after effects of COVID. Make sure you've got a good ecosystem and support system. Make sure even if you have a small team, you're surrounding yourself with good service providers, I highly encourage everybody to have, you know, at least an informal advisory board and more importantly, to engage them. It's one thing to say you have an advisory board. It's another thing to actually have regular check-ins with them and talk to folks.
1: How would you recommend people go about finding good advisors?
0: Think about what your strong suits are and where you could use the most help. And then, you know, talk to other companies that, you know, in the industry and see if they have recommendations.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's a really friendly group, actually, like entrepreneurs and founders and investors in the natural food space. I feel like there's a camaraderie and a sort of wanting to do things that help other people just because everyone in this industry, all of us are trying to get better things to the consumers in America. And so it feels like that to me. I don't know if it feels like that to you.
0: Absolutely. That's why I came into the industry, you know, 20 plus years ago, even though the industry has changed a little bit, I still feel like that's really how it is. And I've been really encouraged on the investor side. I totally feel that way. We're part of something called Chicago Seed Co., basically about 30 or 40 different funds, individuals, family offices that invest in the food industry and everybody shares deals and is there to help. There's really no competition for deals. It's more just how can we all co-invest and help each other out?
1: That's really cool. I think there are a lot of those groups sort of finding their way now into different industries. And I was talking to a couple of brands. One of them was... High Key, which is a snack brand, and then sure. Lemon Perfect, which you probably heard about recently because they just got a big investment. But they're part of this thing called ACES, which is this. I can't remember what, they, what it stands for. Do you know about that? It's the association of companies that are looking to lower sugar consumption. And I'm saying it wrong, but that's what it's about. And there are probably, I think there are seven or eight brands that are part of the coalition now, which is really cool because- they're sort of pooling their resources to raise awareness of the sugar problem in addition. I mean, obviously that helps the brands, but it's a whole bunch of people trying to do it and move the whole group forward, which I love.
0: That is great. I mean, I think any opportunities to partner with other like-minded companies can be yeah. but help.
1: I think so too. I think that's really cool. And I think that's different. I mean, I think that's what's nice about the community that's different than big food because that's not what it's about right that's about making money and and holding everything really tight but this feels like it's different and so that's why I love it too I think it's awesome
0: absolutely agree.
1: yeah cool awesome well I really appreciate your time thank you so much this has been great I can't wait to get this out there because I think people are going to get a lot out of it
0: thanks Christy really enjoyed it too and look forward to keeping in touch
1: me too Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.